All right, if you can turn to Philippians chapter 2. That's where we left off, where we find ourselves. We've talked about, um, well, we're in the midst of this section in which we're ta- Paul is asking them to live as uh, good citizens of the heavenly kingdom. And he talks initially about uh, humility and then gives them the example of Christ uh, who humbled himself, emptied himself, and was obedient even to death on the cross. Uh, and then talks about how God works within us. And so that's kind of where we pick up right now. Um, we're going to actually, uh, I'm actually going to begin. Ah, my brain is lost. Um, yeah, sorry. wasn't working right. I'm going to reread our, our text from last week as well as our text for this week. So, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, so that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for sending the light of the world into the world so that we might behold your glory. Know truth and have life. Send him here by the Spirit that we might behold your glory in the Scriptures this morning so that we can know the truth more fully, that we can believe it more firmly, and we can walk more completely in the light of in the light to the praise of your glorious grace. In Christ Jesus, our Savior and King. Amen. Thursday, I thought uh, everything was going to be easy. I left the office, I'd gone to the Y, and uh, I didn't have to be anywhere until 6 o'clock, and so I thought I would do an extra work, long workout, and so I did my 30 on the elliptical, and I did uh, some extra time on the treadmill, and it was a really good workout, kept up a good pace, and uh, my plan from then was to go to Arthur uh, Pack Park and pick up some food that we had gotten from a fundraiser, and then off home, uh, to eat dinner with the family, and then back here to have rehearsal at 7 o'clock. It all seemed so simple until I turned the key in my car, and there was nothing. And so began sort of a process uh, in which um, I rediscovered the difficulty of obedience. And so we all struggle with the reality of obedience. Uh, Paul had talked about how they obeyed you know, while he was there, and they continued to obey afterwards, but he encouraged them to grow in their obedience, and he's about to unpack some of the dimensions of that. He's about to give them uh, some of the motives for obedience, motives that 
uh, help us to fight our inclination towards disobedience. How does obedience happen or not happen in our lives? In keeping with how we've kind of done things lately, I'm going to have questions and then sort of derive the answers to those questions from the Scriptures. And so the first question that I came up with that reflects what's going on in in the passage is how does being God's child motivate obedience? You see, Paul wants them to work out their salvation, okay, as we saw last week, but part of that is by being children of God without blemish. But this is a motive, it's not a goal, okay? Let's not confuse this. He's addressing them as God's children by grace. He's bringing up the reality of their adoption by God in Jesus Christ. They're intended to be God's children by grace without moral defect or deformity. As we see in places like Deuteronomy chapter 8. And how does this happen? He doesn't go into that here, but we know from other passages of Scripture, like Romans 8 and Ephesians 1, that we share in Christ's status as Son when we receive Jesus by faith. So he is the eternal son, the one who has always been the son, and when we're joined to Jesus by faith, when we receive him by faith, we also therefore become sons or children of God. We're adopted as his children, and therefore have all the rights and privileges that Jesus has. And so it's it's gracious that we have become sons, and what happens here is Paul is wanting to them to live like sons. And so their sonship, their adoption, is intended to be a motive for their obedience because it is an unchangeable status. Now, the context is that he grants a command, or he gives a command. Do all things is the command. But do all things in what way, he clarifies, without grumbling or disputing. To which we probably ought to pause for a moment, because grumbling and disputing is essentially our native tongue. It is something that comes oh too naturally to us. When we adopted... uh, kids. Um, One of them was old enough to speak well, and her original, her native tongue was not English, and so she had a longer adjustment period uh, of learning English. She had to stop speaking her native tongue, which we didn't understand, and begin to speak English. And so we, as adopted children of God, need to stop speaking our native language of grumbling and disputing and begin to speak God's gracious language. Grumbling. <coughs> that term kind of uh, is not typically understood as something you would do out loud. It's more of a grumbling to yourself, murmuring, so to speak. It's sort of a secret, expressing a secret displeasure, either in events or in decisions. Disputing, on the other hand, is public. It conveys more of the idea of a, a destructive dialogue that's taking place. And we recognize that the Proverbs... 
uh, contain plenty of warnings about both the grumbling and the disputing. We see from biblical history, the Israelites grumbled a lot. (laughs) Their time in the wilderness is filled with these periods of grumbling. We see, for instance, in Exodus 15, they grumbled because the water was not sweet. The water was bitter and corrupt and poisonous. And so they grumbled, Ah, you brought us out here to die! That was uh, their common refrain and how they grumbled. And initially, God just dealt with the problem of the water. Moses was meant to put something in there, and so now the water was cleansed and good. But we see very shortly thereafter in Exodus 16, they're grumbling about the food that God graciously gave them to sustain them, the manna from heaven, for which they did not work. They grew weary of the manna and began to complain, and so God sent them so much quail that they were sick of quail. Once again, Exodus 17, there's a problem with water. You brought us out here to die. Once again, God provides water, this time from a rock. Fast forward, Numbers chapter 14, when the spies come back from the promised land, they've spied out the land to see how God's promised provision for them is so great, and they come back, there's giants in the land, and the people begin to grumble that God has brought them, that Moses has brought them out and is going to bring them into a land in which they will be slain by enemies that are far larger than themselves. And now God begins to up the ante in dealing with their grumbling because he calls them a perverse generation, and that generation is going to die in the wilderness, not tasting and experiencing and enjoying the promised land. But we see once again... Grumbling is not far away because in chapter 16, Korah brings up the rebellion against Moses and Aaron. And this time the grumbling is met with the earth opening up and swallowing Korah and his people. And so Israel had a long history of grumbling against their leaders, but specifically against God. We go fast forward into the New Testament, we see the Pharisees grumbling about two different things one of which was Christ eating with sinners. We see that in Luke 5, Luke 15, Luke 19. That's a, predominant, that's a common theme in Luke's gospel, the grumbling of the Pharisees because Jesus had the audacity to sup with those who were tainted by sin. But we also see in John 6 that they were grumbling against his claims as a Messiah. And so this is why I say grumbling is our native tongue. What goes on, however, I believe, is also that Satan obscures the reality of our sonship uh, so that sin seems more attractive in the midst of affliction. You see, all that's going on is they're being squeezed, and what's coming out reveals what's really in their hearts, and what's in their hearts is the want, the desire to have their own way. And so, I got squeezed. It wasn't just that my car died. I was fine when it was just the car that, was, that had died. But Amy picked me up because I had the money for the food fundraiser. So uh, we go to Arthur uh, Pack Park. I always have trouble saying that fast. So I don't know who named it that way. They tried, they're trying to kill me, really. And I can't find the place where the food is. I'm looking for someone who's got like um, 
the team was the Broncos. I'm looking for someone with Broncos gear on so that I can just give them the money, get the food, go home, have dinner, get to rehearsal. And there's no one to be found. And I'm wandering up and down the sidewalk trying to find this. And suddenly I hear, well, and as I'm exasperated now, I'm gro- my exasperation is growing because time is ticking. And Brian's supposed to pick me up at my house. And I'm texting Amy, and then now, we, now she knows it's at the food court area. So now I know where to go. And that's where I discover that they're not there yet. It's now 6.15. And I'm forgetting who I am in Christ. I'm forgetting that I am a son of God and that this is beneath me. God does work. Part of what he works in us is to remember our sonship, but he's also working against an enemy. And we see this reality consistently throughout the scriptures. 1 Corinthians 10, We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Paul brings up what happened in the wilderness to warn the Corinthians. God still takes grumbling seriously. James 5, do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. We see as well in Jude, these are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loud-mouthed boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. And so grumbling and disputing begin to escalate to poison relationships, to develop factions within the church, and ultimately to destroy numerous churches. Which is precisely why James warned in James 3 that the tongue is a fire that sets things on fire. I may have told you this story, I can't remember, but my cousin and I once were riding our bikes through the park near our home, and he decided to play with matches. Why you're riding a bike and playing with matches, I don't understand this at all. But he, he, lets, he lights the whole pack on fire, and then just kind of throws it in the air, not thinking anything, while it lands in the grass, which is dry. And so he stops, and I'm like, just criticizing him for being a moron. And that's when the wind has picked up and he can't put out the fire. That's what grumbling and disputing can do if we don't quickly extinguish it within a congregation. It can set a fire that blazes through and destroys congregations. That's what Paul is warning them about. Rather, We see that God works not grumbling within us, but God works within us so that we will be blameless and we will be innocent precisely because we are children of God without blemish. Precisely because he makes us that positionally by the grace of justification. Paul, in fact, had prayed for this in chapter 1, verse 10, that they would be blameless and innocent. So now, this is where they need to be blameless and innocent. And so, by grace, they were not to be open to charges. That if there was a conflict which damaged the church, they wouldn't be the ones responsible through their grumbling or disputing. That by grace, they were not to be having experienced this particular evil, which can be a plague upon churches. So this is what Paul wants for them, reminding them that they 
are God's children. And so God's adopted children put away sinful speech. Jesus, help us to remember who we are. Secondly, uh, how does being the light of the world motivate obedience? See, um, God does not work in us in the middle of a vacuum, but he works in us who live in the context of a particular world. The Philippians lived in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. And so do we. Okay. What's interesting is that Paul uses a phrase out of Deuteronomy 32, which was applied to the Israelites, and he's talking about the people who are around the Philippians. In other words, there's supposed to be a great contrast between God's people and the people around them. Uh, such arguing and disputing is natural and normal for people who are quicked, uh, crooked and twisted. But it is not natural for those who have been redeemed by God's grace. Crooked or curved. It's one of those nice words that kind of translates over into English fairly well. It's the word that we get scoliosis from. It's basically just a transliteration. The curvature of the spine. Scoliosis. That's the, what's the idea here, that people are bent out of their normal position and posture. They're deformed. Not only that, but this idea of twisted, that means someone who has departed from the right path. They've, they've gone off the beaten trail into sort of a place of their own, and they've ended up in a bad place. And both of these are intended to be pictures of sinfulness that were curved inward, as Luther and Lewis said, and uh, that we are twisted and on the wrong path. The Philippians had been a part of that generation. They had been part of the curved, the crooked and twisted people, but they had been rescued by Jesus through his grace. And the same is for us, if we remember our redemption. And it's because of that rescue that we are then, as, as Paul says, to shine as lights in the world. The second command that emerges here. We are to shine as lights in the world. We're to live as beacons. We're, we're to live as lamps that light the way for other people. One of the ways in which this word lights is used is a navigational beacon. Something that glows at night so that you know the road or you don't hit the rocks by the island. It's to help you find your way. And so we're supposed to be people who essentially help others find their way. That's part of our identity in Jesus Christ. And why do I say it that way? I say it that way because Jesus is the light of the world. Right? He's the... the the sun who is like a sun that shines brightly. And when we're joined to Jesus by faith, we begin to reflect that light just as the moon reflects the light of the sun. The moon has no light of its own. The moon merely reflects the light of the sun back to the earth. And so we are intended to reflect the light of the true light, Jesus Christ, to a world that is in darkness. 
And so we see that in places like Matthew 5, where Jesus says to his people, you are the light of the world. You are a city set on a hill that cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and then put it under a basket, but they put it on a stand so it gives light to the whole house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory not to you, but to your Father who is in heaven. And so we're intended to be lights that shine so that a crooked, twisted generation can begin to find its way. We're intended to be this light of the world, bearing witness not to ourselves, but bearing witness to Jesus, the true and everlasting light. And the reality is, is that we cannot be light bearers when we're grumblers and disputers. See, that's what happened. As I'm walking through the park, I'm getting more agitated. And it probably was reflected in my text to Amy. And then I remembered my sermon text. God worked in me, okay, so that I would actually remember this. And what brought me back from the brink of my um, frustration and rage was I am intended to be a light to people. And I can't, I can't hold forth the light of truth when all I'm doing is... It's inconsistent. I'm not bearing good witness to Jesus Christ. It was a very convicting moment as I'm wandering through this park, frustrated. Sometimes our ineffectiveness in evangelism can be a result of the fact that we're not living as God's people, but we're living like the world. And one way is arguing and grumbling in this particular context. But it's not just a pastor wandering through a park. Think about your political dialogue on social media or in the office. How could you bear witness to Christ when you're such a grumbler in that sphere and arena? That should be convicting for probably most of us. That's why I've, I don't really comment on politics anymore online. We are intended, because we are the light of the world, shining in the darkness here, we're intended to hold fast to the word of life. Now, that word of holding can mean hold fast, hold tight. It could also mean hold out, extend out. And so, does this mean that the word of life is for us, or is it being held out in witness, as the context seems to indicate? To be God's children without blemish, we do need to hold on to the word of life for ourselves. 
For instance, Psalm 119, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. We are to cling to the truth for ourselves so that we grow, so that we change, so that we become more like Jesus through the renewing of our minds, things that we've talked about in the last couple of weeks. But in order to be lights in the world, we also need to hold out that word of life to others. And so those two pictures really work together. We can't hold it out unless we hold fast to it ourselves. We, we cannot tell the truth to people unless we have the truth. And the truth only, in this instance, comes from the Scriptures. So... The word that makes us wise for salvation, as Paul told Timothy, and godly living, as Paul also told Timothy, is the same one that we are intended to hold out for others so they may know the way because they've lost their way. And so as lights, we hold on and hold out the word of life. Jesus, help us to remember who we are. Our third question is, how does the day of Christ motivate obedience? This one is a little different. This has not to do with our identity, but more our destination. Okay? But how does the day of Christ motivate our obedience? Paul moves from one thing to the other in the midst of this. I mean, he's just stringing all this stuff together. We're children of God. We're lights. And now the reality of the day of Christ is brought to the forefront Again, because this is at least the third time that he's mentioned it. He mentioned it, of course, at the very beginning of this letter. He says that I am confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion on the day of Christ Jesus. And so he reminds them of, of the consistent, persistent gracefulness of God and their salvation, that it is not dependent upon them, but it is dependent upon God to, who has begun this thing, who's going to bring it to completion, but the completion date is the day of Christ Jesus. Not the day you want it to be, which was probably yesterday. I know I wish it was a long time ago that I was perfected in Christ, not just by position, but also in person. Okay? He brings it up again when he talks about Christ and his exaltation. And that day when everyone will bow and everyone will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So Paul is very much has this idea of the day of Christ in his mind. And he gets back to it. As a, as a third motivation for gospel obedience, a third gracious motivation for gospel obedience. If they obey on the day of Christ, he says, that I may be proud. Now, often we talk about how um, that boasting is not a good thing, but Paul's not boasting in himself. He's boasting about them. Okay, very different. He's like a parent. He was excited because their, ch their child did well in school or scored the touchdown or um, played at the recital so perfectly. Every parent feels a sense of good pride when their children excel at something. 
That's not to be laid aside. It's, the problem is if you gain your righteousness out of your children performing well and begin to boast about it in a way that makes you look good <laughs> as opposed to encouraging your children. And so Paul here is uh, not looking at it in terms of how he looks good, but that he will be proud on the day of Christ Jesus because of who they are and what they have done. Now, there is a little bit of uh, selfishness in here, if we can use that word, but uh, it has a negative connotation. But Paul does say it will be proof that he did not run in vain or labor in vain. And so he does sort of go there. If, if they move from obedience to disobedience, if they allowed the conflict that was currently going on in their community to spiral out of control and to burn the house down, then his labor in Philippi would have been seen to be in vain, without purpose, for nothing. But remember, he's confident that he who began a good work in the Philippians will bring it to completion. And so uh, he, he's not really afraid of this happening, but, he's, but he is letting them know what would happen if perchance they allowed their disobedience to run amok. Running points to exertion, to exhaustion. This reminds us that ministry is like a marathon. It is not like a sprint. It wears one down and wears one out. Um, Ask Nathan Warner how he feels after he runs one of those marathons that he runs. He's not saying, give me another. He's saying, it's time to rest. But it's not just the word run. It's also the word labor. Labor also points to the fact of exertion and exhaustion. Okay? I've said before, ministry is not convenient. And now I'll say, ministry is not easy. If you shirk away from ministry in the church because it's tiring, you've missed the point. Paul is embracing it even though it is tiring. Uh, Just like some of us, for um, health reasons, uh, go through the exertion of exercise. I do not like being on the elliptical. Uh, I do not like being on the treadmill. But I want to be healthy, therefore I endure the um, tedium, although I have music, so it's not always tedious, but the exhaustion for health. And Paul is saying, essentially, that there is, a, there is an exhaustion that comes with ministry, but, but that's okay. We don't need to run from it because it's tiring. And we're going to kind of get back to this in a, in a moment. Paul then brings up this sacrificial language, both for him and for them, which implies that... Um, in addition to his, his exhaustion through, miser- through ministry, he's expecting them to grow exhausted in ministry. He talks about himself as his, his martyrdom would be like a libation or a drink offering. For instance, we see that in Numbers 15, verse 7. Um, 
that would be poured out after their offering. And so what happens in Numbers is that you present the greater offering and then sort of to top it off, there's the drink offering. And all of this points, of course, back to the reality of a fellowship meal with God. Okay? Food, drink. He's pointing to their sacrifice due to faith as greater than his martyrdom because his is merely the libation that is poured out afterwards. Okay? But that's interesting, is that he's viewing his life as being poured out when we think of Jesus who emptied himself in his own ministry on earth. Paul is just following in the example. Now, see, he's not saying that, but that's exact, that is exactly what he means. He's following in the example of Jesus, and he's calling them to follow in the example of Jesus themselves. But he's also inviting them to join him, not only in the weariness of ministry, but more importantly, the joy. He invites them to join him in his joy. Catch that. Okay? Even if a martyred, basically, he says, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. The weariness is now, the joy is the day of Christ. When we see the fruition, the fruit of all of our labors, because sometimes that is not uh, obvious to us. But Paul knows the joy is going to come uh, because there is going to be a harvest that's evident. And he wants the Philippians to share in his joy, and he wants them to offer him to share in their joy over the fruitfulness of their own ministry. That their weariness in the present is not in vain, but it will produce a rich harvest if only they keep going. It's much like a farmer. You don't give up after the first week because it was hard. There are many more hard weeks to come in farming, which is part of why I think farming is used as an illustration or metaphor of ministry often. But you know what? Eventually there's a harvest. And you rejoice. So he doesn't want them to give up because of the hardness of ministry. He wants them to remember there's going to be joy at the end of the road. That the day of Christ means a day of joy. And so continue to obey. This Holy Spirit works to fix our eyes on that joy-filled day. Well, the evil one works to obscure our, that day from our eyes and to think it's a day of terror and fear instead of a day of joy. But the Spirit works so that we long for that day and we know it will be a great day. And therefore, on the basis of that, we grow in obedience in the present. And so the joyful day of Christ motivates us to empty ourselves in service to others. And I should add, knowing the joy that we will receive in the future. And so in the real world, which is, a crook, which is crooked and twisted, our obedience is really to do all things that, that Christ calls us to do without grumbling and without arguing. 
precisely because we're children of God. Our obedience means that we hold on to and we hold out the word of life because we are the light of the world. That we're called to exhaust ourselves in ministry because of the coming day of Christ, which will bring joy. And so our identity and our hope in Christ is intended to shape our choices in the present, to turn us away from our disputing and our grumbling and our whining and our complaining and redirect us to what Paul doesn't say here, uh, but perhaps the idea of thankfulness, joy, gratitude, edification for others in the present. This is what God is working in us by by the Holy Spirit to will and to do, to redirect us into godliness. Let's pray. Father, um, in many ways a convicting thing for me, that I confess I am so prone to the arguing and the complaining that when I'm squeezed, not great things come out. And it reminds me of my great need for Jesus. And so as we hear these things, may it remind all of us of our great need for Jesus so that we turn to him in increasing measure and trust in increasing measure. Help us to grow in our understanding of what it means to be your children, what it means to be the light of the world, and what it means that the day of Christ draws near so that we will... Um, fervently pursue um, the ministry you call us to, as well as pursuing obedience. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.